0: Chosen a job so difficult, requiring so many technological developments, we're gonna have to start from scratch. We need to fail. We need to fail down here, so we don't fail up there. What's wrong? Nothing,
1: honey. Your dad's gone to the moon.
0: Neil Armstrong, Resolve it. We have a goal for main engine start. <laughs> Apollo set on line control. We passed the six-minute mark in our countdown for Apollo 11. Now five minutes, 52 seconds, and counting. We're on time at the present time. What surprised me when I started researching the material was how close to failure that success really was, how fraught with danger, and how costly the whole endeavor to go to the moon was. Six, five, four, three, two, one... Zero. All engine running. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. 32 minutes past the hour. It is truly remarkable to think about not just the fact that humans walked on the moon, but that they walked on the moon uh, over 50 years ago, literally uh, uh, 60 years from the Wright brothers' first flight in an airplane. The uh, surface is fine and powdery. I can pick it up loosely with my toe. Somebody
2: got a Swiss Army knife? Swiss Army knife? Are you kidding me? Hello, and welcome to Science-ish. I'm Rick Edwards, joined as ever by Dr. Michael Brooks. Hello. How are you, Brooksy? I'm good. Very well, thank you. Miss me? Not really, if I'm honest. Really? <laughs> I suppose that weirdly. Uh, that even... wasn't the answer you wanted, was it? No, but actually, we do see each other quite regularly, even when we're not doing the podcast. Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. So, yeah, I missed you for those couple of days.
2: Yeah. And you might have noticed that we have been taking a little sort of sabbatical. Um, but while we're putting together season four. Season, we thought four. We'd... season four now. Wow. Think about it. We haven't been cancelled. No, no, because there's no one to cancel us. <laughs> <Because it's> not, <laughs> we haven't cancelled ourselves. That's not the model. <laughs> um, but we thought we would just uh, it sort of tied you over with a with a bonus episode uh, because we just we we like it. It's yeah. that, it's really just that we like it. It's
1: a very special episode, isn't it? I mean, not just because it has exclusive content, but also because we're taking one small step. I,
2: mm, I don't love that. No? No, I I don't love that. Carry on. Okay. Um, One
1: giant leap. I hate it. (laughs) (laughs) Go on. We're taking a giant leap into the land of non-fiction.
2: We've essentially decided to open things up a bit for the next season by exploring some biopics. There's some great stuff that has happened in real life. Um, You can't make it up. Uh, And we're going to test drive that um, with a a new film that launched earlier this week. First Man. (gasps) Have you seen it? Yes, I have. What a film. It's fair, I mean, it's, I mean, it's epic. Absolutely it,
1: epic, isn't it? And just extraordinary to kind of get
2: that insight into what it feels like to be that guy. I mean, what a guy! I thought I knew quite a lot about the moon landings, and it turned out I didn't know that much. Mainly about the preparation. That's not like you to think you know everything about something. No, it's very. It's very. Out, unlike turns head, out quite ignorant. <laughs> no, that's not really. Not really my mo. No. Um, But our big question.
1: Probably should say who the first man is that we're talking about, maybe.
2: Oh, sorry. Uh, Is it not? I feel like everyone knows. I feel like it should be obvious, but you never know. Neil Armstrong, uh, first man on the old moon. Good on him. Yeah. And so our big question is going to be should we go back to the moon?
1: Okay. So hopefully we've got a total legend to give us the answer to this question.
2: Well, because this is, as we keep saying, a special episode we've got ourselves an Oscar-winning Hollywood director. Holy shit. Director of Whiplash, La La Land, and now first man, Mr. Damien Chazelle. How's he? <laughs> He's one of the best how we've had. Uh, and, and like many of us growing up, he was only really aware of what went right with the Apollo missions and not what went wrong.
1: Last night, something like 125 million Americans and uncounted millions in other countries saw a unique combining of romance
0: and technology growing up i just uh all i knew really about the apollo missions was the success story was the landing on the moon and sort of iconic imagery that resulted and what surprised me when i started researching the material was how close to failure that success really was how fraught with danger and how costly the whole endeavor to go to the moon was. That's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. It kind of made me realize that we today, I think, almost take for granted the accomplishment. We sort of live in a live in the afterglow of humans having walked on the moon. Beautiful view. Isn't that something? Magnificent
2: sight out here. Magnificent
0: desolation. So there's almost this uh, this effect that the kind of gilded version of the history has of making us think it might have been easy that it was sort of superhumans kind of doing it uh, all in a day's work when in fact of course it was very much the opposite. Lift off. Lift, Lift light oh, Zero,
2: flex, good. Flight.
0: Roger, Mister. Roger. Clock start. Feel pressure running a little high. high. Before working on this movie, I didn't know that Neil had ever lost a daughter. I didn't know that Neil had had so many brushes with death himself that he'd went through basically a near catastrophe in space in the Gemini 8 mission that he uh, commanded before Apollo 11. For seven hours after liftoff and 27 minutes of normal docking, an excessive yaw and roll motion occurred. I'm going to cycle the Acme and propel the motor valves. Switching ADLs, pitch. The crew punched up 400, but the trouble was not in the Agena. Oh,
2: it's 13%. It's not the
0: Agena, it's us. Struggling to regain control, Mr. Armstrong was forced to fire the re-entry thrusters and gradually reasserted control over the spacecraft. On my mark, I'm dark. I didn't know that he had so many friends close to him who were killed in the sort of overall march towards the moon. So I think I just was sort of shocked and then fascinated by sort of how he was able to soldier through these kinds of ordeals and and how actually maybe in a certain respect these ordeals actually helped fuel him towards the moon.
1: I kind of want to talk about the film but I don't want to give any spoilers. So I think it's sort of hard to well, give yeah, obviously, a spoiler on this obviously, one. Obviously I don't mean like the you know the the actual <laughs> don't ending. Don't give a spoiler
2: about Titanic.
1: <laughs> but I, I just mean like the you know the stuff that he went through. He was like you know one of those people that's just sort of out there on the edge of you know what is possible to mm. be as a human being i think you know the sense of coolness this you know ability to kind of do these calculations in your head while you're spinning madly around and sort of in danger of losing your life and almost blacking out it's just insane
2: throughout the film you're just thinking well, I'm definitely dying there. Yeah, I'm, yeah. Definitely dying there. Yeah. I'm definitely dying there. I'm definitely dying there. I mean, I'm not getting anywhere near it to be honest. No, no. Be absolutely <laughs> awful. Just in a horrible flap.
1: <laughs> so, um, obviously, you know, it's like nearly fifty years ago. Fifty years ago. Next year, yeah, the moon landings. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, going back even further, I mean, this didn't come from nowhere, did it? I mean, the idea of wanting to put a man on the moon.
2: No, no. So, so rocket technology is weirdly. Very old. The Chinese were doing it in 300 BC. So they're just like stuffing gunpowder into bamboo cane and then blocking up one end. And then so very primitive. It sounds like Chinese teenagers. Um, Yeah, it's that kind of vibe. (laughs) Um, And they were using them initially for kind of display rituals. So effectively like fireworks. Yeah. Um, And then uh, latterly for kind of uh, military stuff. And the, uh, I think it was the, the Mongols bought it to Europe. And so the first uh, recorded use of rockets by Europeans is like 1250. And then from then on, there have been kind of small ballistic rockets used in, in, in warfare. But then it really started to kick off properly in the kind of early 20th century. And so you've got people kind of joining rocketry clubs. And right. there's, 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 g- genuinely, the interest comes from science fiction. So people like H.G. Uh, Wells yeah, and, yeah. And, and Jules Verne and getting clever sort of physicists kind of wondering and thinking, hmm, maybe maybe we could travel on, on a rocket to, to the moon and and beyond. Yeah. And so you end up with these initially two big dons. Robert H. Goddard, who was a, a, an engineer, and he improved various kind of practical design elements of, of, right. a, of a rocket. Um, and then you've got this guy, uh, Konstantin uh, Tsiolkovsky, I want to say. Tsiolkovsky, Something like that. Yeah, whatever. Um, I have no who idea. He was uh, more of like a, a mass guy, and so he, he kind of developed the, the equations that would describe a rocket's motion. But both of them, coming at it from quite different approaches, concluded that a liquid-propelled rocket could potentially get to space. So yeah. and and that and that, as you can imagine, excited people. Yeah, people, yeah, were quite into that.
0: Here to reveal a plan for a trip around the moon is the chief of the guided missile development at the United States Army's Redstone Arsenal, Doctor Werner von Braun. A voyage around the moon must
2: be. So to- I mentioned these. Rocketry clubs that you had in Germany, in particular. There's a guy called Werner von Braun. Um, oh yeah, not fairly German name, to be fair <laughs> to him. Um, and he he joined uh, one called the Society of Spaceship Travel, quite on the nose. The um, yeah, yeah. Uh, in the 1920s. And he kind what of what does your society actually do then? Yeah <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, at that stage, fuck all. <laughs> Talk about spaceship <laughs> yeah. travel.
0: However, if we can refuel the ship in this orbit. Fuel brought up by cargo
2: rocket ships. He then kind of manoeuvred himself into a position where he he was basically saying, look, I, I'm the big guy. And he therefore became the director of the German military rocket programme and, and that produced the V2, which is the famous yeah, okay. rocket that was used in, yeah. in World War Two. So it, it's like a bit sketchy. So he's obviously working for the Nazis. It's not entirely clear that he was on board with what the Nazis were up to, his version would probably be he was just interested in space travel. This allowed him to develop these yeah. rockets. Uh, it's not, so a, it's, great excuse, it's not it? a great excuse. It's not a great yeah. excuse, uh, at the end of the, the war, he surrendered with, with all his team and all of his stuff. And, C- went to to, and went to America. And went to America.
0: The primary purpose of the first moon trip will be to test the methods and equipment to be used on later voyages into deep space. It will be essentially a scouting trip around the moon, and no landing will be attempted.
2: And so then you had these two guys who were kind of competing. So you've got von Braun in the States, and then you've got this guy, Sergei Korolev, a Russian, who initially the Russians just say to him, Go to Germany. Get all, of that, get all of that V2 stuff. <laughs> we want that V2 stuff. Find all the scientists. And they don't know that von Braun has defected, has oh. gone, gone to America. So they're looking around going, where is everyone? Oh, where are the guys? And So they're office. just sort of, yeah, like they're basically just sort of <laughs> scooping stuff up for an empty <laughs> office and going, well, we'll take this back and see what we can work out with <laughs> it. Um, and then both of them are kind of developing rockets then, uh, yeah. simultaneously. And this is like the start of the Cold War and and the space race, although it wasn't necessarily explicit at at that time and obviously the White House and the Kremlin are not interested in space travel no like at all they're just thinking about military deployment of, of nuclear weapons yeah
1: all right so where's the transition there where it goes from being like you know obviously military concern is the big thing to government starting to say okay you can put stuff in space
2: yeah I mean it was it was always about kind of military but also there's a kind of battle of ideology as well, and like a fight for the prestige of being the first people to do stuff in space, whatever that might yeah. might be.
0: CBS Television presents a special report on Sputnik One, the Soviet space satellite. Douglas Edwards reporting.
2: The big thing, really, is so on October the fourth, uh, nineteen fifty-seven, they they put Sputnik One up into orbit, and 90 minutes after launch, it starts sending a radio signal down to Earth. First man-made object broadcasting to Earth. The Americans pick up the signal, absolutely (laughs) hate it. (laughs) Just, uh, like, fuming. Until two days ago, that sound had never been
0: heard on this Earth. Suddenly, it has become as much a part of 20th century life as the whir of your vacuum cleaner. It's a report from man's farthest frontier. The radio signal transmitted by the Soviet Sputnik, the first man made satellite as it passed over New York earlier And today.
2: then, like, four weeks after that, the Russians send Laika, the dog, oh, into is that space. Just four yeah, weeks? yeah, four, four oh, weeks later. No. I mean, they're really, like, they're getting stuck in the yeah, Russians. Yeah. And the Americans are just there. Like, oh, again, no. just, I like, can't believe this. Our payload is only
0: a, a, a fraction of what Sputnik 1 was, and a small fraction of. Sputnik 2's 1,100 pounds payload weight in orbit so we are competing only in spirit with Sputnik 2
2: so far they try and launch a Vanguard rocket with a satellite it's untested uh, it gets a metre above the ground and then explodes <laughs> I And mean, isn't that it's genuinely oh, um, oh no. just, just humiliating yeah <laughs> that is and then they have um, in April 1961 the first man in space Yuri Gagarin yeah so the the, the russians are bossing it
1: yeah yeah um they've um, absolutely nailed it haven't they
2: yeah and and uh, only only a month later alan shepard um the american astronaut is fired into space but it's really like he's fired into space (laughs) it's not like gagari's gone into orbit they've just basically said (laughs) getting that that rocket up you go (laughs) and then fall back to earth."
0: i'm bill chadel with a special report on project mercury In a span of 15 minutes today,
1: Alan Shepard became a national hero, and the country's faltering prestige received
2: a strong booster shot. So, the thing that really struck me, so when I was uh, reading about this, I went on Wikipedia, and they've just got a a very nice list of every rocket launch, and then just a description of how it went. Genuinely, it's just failure, failure, launch failure, launch failure, failure, failure. It just... Yeah, they they just kept getting it wrong, and it really drives home how just how difficult it is. Yeah, like it's a really really big ask to get something up up to the moon, up into orbit around the Earth. So imagine being the astronauts who are watching all these failures yeah. going, oh yeah, right,
1: can we yeah. put back my
2: launch a little bit? Yeah, is yeah. it me, is it me next? <laughs> is it definitely <laughs> me next. <laughs> um, and and it and it also really puts into context how absolutely bonkers. JFK's thing was so JFK in May 1961, hot off the back of the Bay of Pigs fiasco. Yeah, he sort of needs a bit of a publicity win. Like they're behind in the in the space race very clearly, Clearly. Uh, and he just comes out and says, "Yeah, uh, we're going to land a man on the moon and return safely by the end of the decade." There's just (laughs) no like no one had any idea how to do that. There was no plan whatsoever. The technology didn't exist. Yeah. NASA just had to do everything from scratch. You can imagine that the NASA guys listening to that would have just been like, ex- ex- excuse me? <laughs> we've got to do what now? Um, we're going to need a lot of money. Yeah,
1: yeah. <laughs> and it, d- it did cost yeah. a lot of money. And that's and then, why, you know, we've ended up with the phrase moonshot, haven't we? It's yeah. just like, it's just basically something that you can't imagine how it can even be done.
2: No, no. and, and But it's, you work on it. Yeah, and because you, you have to. And you've got to develop all of this technology from, from scratch. You know the the rockets, the lander, the computers to do it. How you rendezvous <laughs> with another craft yeah, yeah. in in moon orbit? Like it's just it is absolutely nuts. It's nuts, but it's it's and it's even more nuts that they they did it.
1: Yeah. So it took just eight years to sort it all out, though. So they actually managed it incredibly fast. Really.
2: Yeah, it's it's mad. It's mad how quickly they they did it, and it, it just shows, I think, how how quickly science can progress if you just throw money. And to be fair, lives, like you just throw risk to the wind. I mean, it's one Um, of the
1: things that you really get in the film is just people are dying left, right and centre, effectively. (laughs)
2: So you had the first soft landing, a so proper landing on the moon, again was Russians, yeah. um, with Luna 9 in February 1966. Uh, the next year, in 67, you had this practice launch of Apollo 1, um, which caught fire and killed three astronauts. Yeah. Because I think it was rushed. Those yeah, were just rushing into stuff because they knew that the that at this point still the Russians are, are slightly ahead, and it's uh, kind of heartbreaking. And uh, yeah, it's,
0: it's a horrible moment. That really, part. really horrible. What's amazing about the real history is that the more you learn, the more you realize that kind of commonly sort of known and told version of the story is somewhat sugarcoated, is somewhat less dramatic. Really, I would say than the reality was. and, and Mike. I want you to know that I think I'm the luckiest man in the world. And, and I say this not only because I have the honor to be pregnant. It was really important to me and Josh Singer, who wrote the script, which is an adaptation of Jim Hansen's book. You know, it was important to all of us to be as authentic as possible and really try to tell an accurate story about Neil during these years preceding the moon landing basically 1961 up through 1969 when when he did walk on the moon and return to really try to paint an unvarnished portrait of him and that time in history. And so we spent a lot of time talking to people who knew him, talking with his family, his colleagues, his fellow astronauts, going to places he lived, places he worked. Jan, the ship is stable. They're going to be all right. He's okay, Jan. I need you to go home. Fine. Turn the box back on. I'll see what I can do. Turn the box back on now trying to sort of dive into the uh, the personal life, the family dynamics, just everything we could to just get at the reality of what, you know, not just his life, but also Janet's life and their kids' lives, just what the daily life of an astronaut family might have been in that time. Well, there's security protocols. Well, I don't give a damn. I've got a dozen cameras on my front lawn, Deke. Do you want me telling them what's going on?
2: Jan, you have to trust us. We've got this under control.
0: No, you don't all these protocols and procedures to make it seem like you have it under control.
1: But you're a bunch of boys making models out of balsa wood. You don't have anything under
0: control. I was very lucky to have a phenomenal production designer in uh, Nathan Crowley who went to great lengths to get uh, all the contraptions in the film as accurate as possible and he basically had to reconstruct everything because very little of this stuff still exists or if it exists it's in sort of you know installation cases in museums and isn't really accessible
1: 10,000 feet switching the lunar mode final landing approach
0: Everything from the multi-axis trainer that the astronauts train on to the uh, lunar landing research vehicle that Neil almost died in. To all of the spacecraft, the X-15, the Gemini 8, uh, the Apollo 11 command module and lunar module. Almost everything had to be built, as well as mission control and the houses that the astronauts lived in. So he just spent uh, spent a lot of time kind of poring over every piece of archival material that they could, every sort of blueprint that they could find, uh, many of which don't really exist anymore. They're, they're sort of hard to find blueprints for these, uh, for these machines, uh, partly because they were changing so rapidly. Every mission would feature certain alterations and adjustments to the various machines. So to really kind of hone in on what the Gemini aircraft was exactly and what the switches looked like and what worked how and all those things, it took a lot of work. It also took a lot of support from astronauts who flew those machines and, and people who helped build them and train people on them and NASA. And we were very lucky to have the doors opened to us in that regard. Anytime we were shooting uh, something involving one of those crafts, we, we always had somebody on set who had ridden in that craft or designed that craft or had trained astronauts to ride on that craft. So we always had someone that we could kind of turn to whenever we needed and sort of ask if we were off the mark or not.
1: All right, so, so you've got the whole thing set up. Yep. It all works. What do you actually
2: have to do to get to the moon? Yeah, it's a good question. So in terms of getting into orbit in the first place, if you imagine standing at the top of a mountain and you wanted to throw a ball and get it into orbit, firstly, you, you'd do well. Um, <laughs> yeah. but like, I've got quite an arm yeah, on me. Yeah, you need a hell of an arm. <laughs> so if you obviously, if you throw it, it's just going to fall back down to Earth. Um, if you throw it a bit faster, it's going to fall back down to Earth, but a bit further away. Um, if you throw it at, uh, I think it's like seven kilometres a second, mm. so if that's the speed that it leaves your hand at, it effectively falls continuously around the Earth, which is a circular orbit. Okay. So it's just, it's falling, but falling around the, so maintaining a steady distance from the Earth's surface, if Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. Um, then if you throw it at more than seven kilometres a second, then it's going to gain altitude. So it's going to go up and up and up and up and up, but it will reach a point when it starts falling back down again. So you kind of have this thing where it's in like an elliptical orbit around the Earth. Um, Or if you've got a really, really good arm, then you could throw it at over eleven kilometers a second, something like that, um, which is escape velocity, and then it just it leaves just keeps the, going. the Earth's orbit, right. and it would just keep going at that speed because there's no air resistance or anything in, in space. Although it will still be orbiting the Sun at that yeah. point. But you're out but that's of a the good Earth. throw. Obviously. Yeah, that, that's a hell of a throw. Um, so that and that's sort of what you're trying to do with with your rocket. Yeah, you're trying to get into a very high elliptical orbit so that the high elliptical orbit around the Earth is taking you like right near the moon. Okay. So you're trying to throw like throw the rocket towards the moon and you're traveling, I think you need to travel at about uh, it's ten point eight kilometers a second um before you shut your engines down. And yeah. that will get you into that elliptical orbit. And then you fire a, a thruster, I think it's called the translunar injection. When you get right by the moon, that can change your direction and put you into orbit around, around the, moon. the
1: moon. Okay. All right, so you're, you're in lunar orbit. Yeah. What do you do next? Because you've, you've got to get down to the surface, haven't you?
2: Uh, yeah, you have. So the rocket that we're using, the Saturn, Saturn V, yeah. most powerful rocket ever, and it's a three-stage thing. So you have three different sections of rocket thrusters. And the relevant point, you ditch the dead weight. When, no, when those rockets are out of fuel, you just get rid of them so yeah. you're not carrying that, that dead weight. And right when you're in your lunar orbit, the command module... Which is the bit that the astronauts are in detaches, docks with the lunar module, and then the lunar module eventually—I think it's like four days later—detaches from the command module and goes down and lands on the moon with the lander. Right, and then easy, job's done. Yeah. easy, yeah. But it's—I mean—it's quite I mean, like when you look at it. it oh God, it's so insane. Like, there's so many steps at which things can yeah. go wrong, and then you're down there. Obviously, you've done the easy
1: bit. Yeah. Now, now you've got to plant the flag and then go home.
2: Yeah, which they practiced.
1: No, they, 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 they did genuinely
2: not. They, they they practiced everything. So they practiced planting the flag. They practiced like going up and down the ladder from the lander. Like he he will have practiced his first step.
1: Uh, like. Okay.
2: And then when when you're up there, they they did a load of science. So they left uh, they left mirrors up there that we still use. Oh um, yeah. So that we can just uh, fire photons so light at and get incredibly accurate. Uh, readings for the distance between the Earth and the Moon. Yeah, you can check like orbital variation of the Moon. You can also use it to, uh, and, and are still using it to check sort of fluctuations in in gravitational strength um uh, and like universal gravity. Uh, okay. um, and it's pretty stable. It turns out, which is yeah, good news. yeah, that's good news. Um, and then they they measured uh like seismic activity, solar wind. The main thing they did, they just brought back. A load of samples of rock and soil, and initially, I think that the idea was that the rock was the the interesting stuff, and the soil was just like to to pack it in. Um, oh, right. But uh, and we're still like fifty years later, we're still analyzing those samples because we have new questions, new ways of um, taking measurements, and so on. And that that was probably the most valuable thing in terms of science that was that was done by by Apollo Eleven. Yeah. So what's great about these lunar rock and, and soil samples is that the Moon records stuff that's happening in space that you just don't get on Earth. Because we're, we've got a magnetic field and an atmosphere that kind of protects us from cosmic rays and, and solar winds and all that kind of thing. The Moon doesn't have any of that. So the Moon is constantly being affected by this stuff. And you can then read that from these samples.
1: Uh, okay. So uh, you've got your science done. You think it's time to go home. <laughs> like, at this point, presumably, you're just hoping the thing works and takes off again.
2: Yeah, and and luckily it did. Uh, so yeah, after 21 hours, they um, uh, Neil Armstrong and, and Buzz Aldrin uh, lifted off from the moon um, in in the lunar module, travelled back into lunar orbit where they met up with uh, Michael Collins in the in the command module, and then three days later they landed in the Pacific Ocean. It's amazing, Job isn't it? Done. It's amazing, absolutely amazing. It's sort of it, it's a real like um, it, talking about it, but also watching the film very goose bumpy yeah he's just
1: like
0: fuck
1: i know (laughs) i
2: know
0: i believe that this nation should commit itself to achieving the goal before this decade is out of landing a man on the moon and returning him safely to the earth what was fascinating about nasa at this time was that they were literally making it up as they went along they set this goal of going to the moon before they even had the technology to do it In fact, that was part of why they set that goal, because it seemed like the only way to beat the Russians at the time was to just set a goal that was so far-fetched that everyone would have to start from scratch. So the outlandishness of it was built into, you know, the premise for NASA... And so I think that's one amazing thing you find in the evolution of those crafts is a group of people figuring out, as they go along and through trial and error, what being in space really means.
2: Okay, I'm coming over. Okay, standby. See me yet? Oh, I sure. Do. Huh?
0: How to get into space in the first place, how to stay in space, how to find another craft in space, how to navigate in space, how to maintain stability in space. Finally, eventually, how to, you know, walk on the moon. Uh, all these things were sort of steps in a process that, you know, as you see in the movie, took the better part of a decade, and none of them came without great difficulties and at times great sacrifice brian neil if it does turn out you'll go down in history what kind of thoughts do you have about that when the thought hits you uh gosh suppose that flight successful we're planning on that flight being successful uh i i just meant how you feel about being a part of history but uh, those uh, who haven't uh, read the plot uh, we'll read the flight that's on the front landing gear of this Two hemispheres, one showing. I hope we go back to the moon. It is truly remarkable to think about not just the fact that humans walked on the moon, but that they walked on the moon uh, over 50 years ago, literally uh, uh, 60 years from the Wright brothers' first flight in an airplane. Man
1: from the planet Earth, first set foot upon the moon, July 1969, 50. They came in peace for all mankind...
0: I mean, just the progression of that technology and that ability was so rapid. So now, you know, it it feels like it it is high time that we go back and that we take the next steps. But one thing I think that uh, I wanted to try to communicate through the movie, that's certainly something that became really clear to me when I was researching the movie, is, uh, you know, maybe suggests why we haven't been back, is just how hard it is. And how the only way these kind of things happen, these sort of major advances happen, are when people are willing to, uh, to take certain risks that, of course, for human reasons, are not easy to swallow. Hello, Neil and Buzz. I'm talking to you by telephone from the Oval Room at the White House. And this certainly has to be the most historic telephone call ever made. I just can't tell you how proud we all are of what you For every American, this has to be the proudest day of our lives. And for people all over the world, I am sure they too join with it
1: in what a to feet this is. So I mean the point is, you know we're trying to answer this question, you know, should we go back to the moon? I mean, we haven't, have we? We haven't been back. NASA has been talking about Mars. I mean, does the moon have any bearing on that?
2: Yeah, it does because um, if you want to go to Mars, uh, the moon is a pretty good place to start. Um, firstly, it's closer. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. And if you want to launch from from the moon, because the gravity is much weaker, you need less fuel. Okay. So that's so it's effectively it's just a good place to start from. Yeah. And secondly, if you want to practice living off-world, the moon is a more convenient place to do it than Mars. So you kind of practice on on the moon to get ready for Mars, is, is the principle of it. Okay, fair enough. So we know that there are ice deposits on the moon that have been put there by... I guess the sort of bombardment of comets and asteroids yeah, and stuff yeah. over the year. We don't know exactly where the ice is; is a slight issue, so we need to get around that. But we we know it's there, um, and if you can start harvesting ice, then we know how to electrolyze that and make it into a kind of hydrogen oxygen propellant that we can then use Perfect, in rockets. Yes. So you can effectively turn yeah the moon into, into a gas station. It's what for gap. Yeah, it is. Yeah, yeah. I like that. So you've got a nice fueling station in in the sky, and it takes less energy to take off from it. So it's kind of perfect. And we're doing stuff at the moment. Uh, so NASA are planning to have a, a space station in lunar orbit. So at the minute, we've got a space station in, uh, in low Earth orbit, in, in yeah. low Earth orbit, but one in lunar orbit. I think it's going to be called the Lunar Orbital Platform Gateway, and then that will be uh, a, a good place uh, from which a to observe. So you can actually start looking closely at the at the lunar surface yeah. and try and work out where, where the ice is, where it might be a good place to set up a moon base, some sort of robotic moon base. This this um, space station actually would be largely robotic. It's much, much smaller than the than the International Space Station. They reckon that they'll be able to three D print yes. down on the yeah, which is always a touch. Yeah, yeah, Down on the surface of the of the moon using lunar soil.
1: So nice. you can start making yeah, yeah, building yeah.
2: blocks out of lunar soil. Yeah. And you're really in business. I
1: like that. Yeah, I want to see that happen in my lifetime. Is that
2: going to happen soon?
1: I mean, this is, this yeah. is not a race now between Russia and America. Is uh, it?
2: No, no, it's not. This
1: is just something we all want to make happen. Y-
2: yeah, this is a big collaboration. So America, Europe, uh, Russia, Canada, Japan are all working together on this on this gateway, this lunar orbiting space station. Is it happening um, after Brexit? Uh, I think it. Yeah, it will be. Yeah, excellent. So we won't be in it. No, I think because we'll still be part of the European Space Agency, won't we? I hope that, I so. I don't, think, don't know. Yeah, I think so. I don't think that changes oh, due to okay. the EU. Yeah, it's the same principle as Eurovision. So we'll oh, still, we'll still yeah, be yeah, in Eurovision. Yeah. yeah, the Eurovision principle, yeah, as yeah, it's as
1: called, yeah, yeah. yeah. In, the, it, in the Brexit it, well, negotiations. <laughs>
2: yeah.
1: um, I did notice there was something missing from your list of collaborations uh, uh, yes. or collaborating nations. Um, uh,
2: China? Don't you worry about China. <laughs> China, <laughs> China as ever. I'll take a care of business <laughs> I think this year actually um, they're gonna have a uh, a satellite that is going to be on the far side of the moon which hasn't been done before yeah um, and then ultimately they're going to have a lander that lands on the far side no one's done that and that's pretty spicy yeah the other thing that's very nice about the moon from a just purely scientific Interest point of view, it's great for deep space observation because it's away from all of like the human generated kind of radio interference. Um, So you can you can monitor low frequency radio waves from like near the start of the uh, of the universe. So you know that those kind of scientists are absolutely pumped. Of course, they are uh, about about this uh, space station or about you know making observations from the moon itself.
1: So um, should we go back to the moon to run down our question?
2: I mean, it's clear. Yes. Yeah. Clear, yes. Um, it's really, really difficult, um, but there will be massive benefits, particularly if we are serious about going to Mars and, and and ultimately becoming a species that can live off our home planet,
1: off world. Yeah.
2: If we and and the moon is the gateway to that. Yeah. I think It's the Watford um, Gap of our dreams Yeah and that's how they're billing it that's how they're trying to secure all their funding is by saying look we think this could be the new Watford Gap <laughs> um, Actually before we go our producers when we sat down with Damien Chazelle asked him one more I think very important
0: question Would you say that Science-ish is your favourite science podcast out there? It's absolutely my favourite now because <laughs> uh, you know this is uh this is as good as it gets how <laughs> Z.
2: that's the recommendation we're after love it Science Ish is a Radio Wolfgang production presented by me Rick Edwards and Dr Michael Brooks the producers were Cormac McAuliffe and Eli Block sound designed by Ivor Slayer Manley special thanks to director Damien Chazelle if you like the show like Damien Please subscribe and rate wherever you listen to your podcast. Thank you. It does help. You can also find us on Twitter at science underscore ish.
1: Who are you texting? I'm just texting my daughter. Um, Why? Because <laughs> her brother told yeah. me that she doesn't believe in the moon landing, so I just wanted to verify that before I lay into her. Doesn't she believe it. Was, in. Yeah, she thinks, thinks it was all like a setup and like oh. recorded or you know filmed somewhere in in LA. She knows that obviously I will uh, rip her to pieces for that. Yeah. But um, yeah, yeah, she's what, one what of did many. You do isn't wrong, she? do you think? I don't know. It's really hard to know what at like, what point a smart, it went guy, wrong. Right? I know. I know.
2: Have you had an idiot child? <laughs>
1: Genuine question. <laughs> I, mean, I, I think it's a, a lot of luck, isn't it? I mean, we've done a lot about nature and nurture on, on this
2: podcast. and
1: Yeah. Yeah, I mean, you can't always make it happen, can you?
2: No. Real shame. Oh, Real well. shame. Shame for her, mainly.
1: Yeah, yeah.